0: Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Copenhagen during the 2016 Innovation Roundtable Summit, where our colleague Carolyn sat down with David Graham, former Senior Innovation Director at LEGO Creative Lab. They discuss how LEGO recovered from being at the brink of bankruptcy to become one of the most powerful brands in the world. Graham shares his thoughts on integrating agile processes at LEGO merging physical and digital experiences, and how to become a diplomatic rebel within large organizations.
1: Very excited to have with us here today, David Graham from Lego, Um, here today to talk about radical innovation through entrepreneurship. Um, So thanks for joining us here at Innovation Roundtable Summit. Where to start? Um, I guess it's one company, uh, one very well-known product. But you've managed to do so much with it. Um, how have you how have you managed to organise Lego, first of all, to be able to create this? If we were to look inside, what what, what does it what does innovation look like?
2: Yeah, and I think <clears throat> to to answer that, there's a little bit about the history of the company as well. To sure, context. sure. Because there's how we did it before the crisis, and there's how we are doing it after the crisis.
1: Right.
2: Because we we. You know, we, we had sort of, I think, the, the classic case of a, of a smaller company growing big and having sort of growing pain <clears throat> in the sense that there wasn't necessarily the right processes in place to handle things getting to the scale where it was getting, um, and at the same time, uh, um, the brand grew strong, and there wasn't maybe a clear strategy and mission for what what actually the brand was all about, and what it should do. Um, so that led to uh, to the, the, the big crisis of the company in 2003 and four, where that was led from that there was no real you know, strong process for how we were innovating. So um, there was no traction on the projects. There was also no clear direction setting for what type of experiences uh, would we develop. But since the brand was strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, many things uh, was thought to be relevant and something that could sell so innovation went in all directions which nearly killed the company Mm -hmm. in 2003 and after that learning from that there was a strong focus back to core capabilities really understanding what is the core value drivers in our company from that building a mission statement that clearly would define what uh, what is the, the DNA of any value proposition that we deliver. And uh, on top of that, um, uh, a product development process was established Mm -hmm. um, that really helped organize the company around um, a flow from the early uh, concept development to complete full maturement of projects and and downstream launch. Um, A couple of things that that was established at that time to help manage um, cost and to, in general, um, create coherence and collaboration across the company was that, you know, in, in, in Lego, we produce these plastic elements, um, the Lego bricks. Mm-hmm. And um, when designers create a new product, it's it's natural for them to think in what new elements might, uh, might I use to go into the model that I'm creating. And before the crisis, this meant that Every year, the number of elements that we had to produce grew to a level where it, uh, it became you know, not cost efficient. So after the crisis, a commonality uh, rule was set in place that said, whenever you invent a new element, you have to retire an old one. So there can be maximum, which is still the case, 7,000 elements in our production at any given time. So when you invent the new one, you have to retire an old one. And further to that, you have to make sure that the element, the piece that you develop, is is not only being used in your product, but also across other product lines and other products in the company. So that meant that the designers now had to work collaboratively across to make sure that new development, new elements, would make sense um, at a large scale. So that has really significantly helped for for the cost effect- effectiveness. Um, and then on top of that, um, a sort of a very lean uh, development process that's really sort of qu- qualifying the projects as they go through. Mm-hmm. And then lately, we added the addition of Creative Play Lab, which is um, the unit I'm working in, where we um, look at the really early stuff, the front end of the front end, and um, are allowed to bend the boundaries of the existing existing core capabilities to say, what future new core capabilities or new capabilities will need to become core for us to stay relevant um for future generations of consumers
1: okay so to be clear then the creative play lab is tasked with the more um disruptive the the radical thinking the experimentation and there's other processes in place uh, who manage more the, the kind of incremental yeah. So would that be correct? Yeah. Okay, okay. So, how then, in particular, Creative Lab then is is set up?
2: So the setup is that we a relatively small team in Creative Play Lab. So we, the front end that's driving the more incremental innovation, is a larger team um, with more people that that are basically feeding new experiences in, but on the same platform. Right. What we're doing is looking at new platforms. Uh, And that's what we're experimenting with. So we're about 35 people, very international team, spread uh, globally across. um, So we're in in China, we're in the U.S., uh, we're in the U.K. and in Denmark, where the headquarters are. And um, many different functionalities. So we're designers, we are marketeers, business developers, engineers, both hardware and software, project managers, research designers. Um, and of course, the design area is, it has many different sub functions. So really diverse team, many different skills, not necessarily full, full feature set teams, but we then you know, leverage um, external partnerships, vendors, freelancers, as well as internal specialists across our value chain to support the work that we do.
1: Great. Um, I guess we can, we can come back to partnerships because I'm, I'm really curious about that. But first, could you maybe talk me through how, how ideas come about then? Um, you know, what does the, the creative uh, brainstorming process right. looks like? Yeah. And then how do you take that then and, and go a little bit further with yes. it and test yes. it and, and all the rest?
2: So it's, it, our process starts with understanding what's going on in the world outside. So very much an outside-in perspective. Um, so we have people that, that solely is, is researching and scouting for interesting things going on, um, both within technology, within business models, of course within consumer changes. That goes for the kids, for the parents, but also for our customers, which, which is the retail, um, what changes are happening there. And um, so it includes micro and macro trends plus potential, you know, big disruptions. What are the big disruptors, both in general, but also more specifically for our business? And all that is mapped out. Wow. And we build, um, uh, we have a, a room, a physical location in our office, which is called the direction room. And there we build, we have a huge wall that contains all these insights across the very di- various different areas. It's, it's a physical one, so you, you have, you know, your, your key disruptors, you have new technologies, you have new consumer insights among the kids, among the parents, among the retailers. All that is on a giant wall, and it's flexible so we can move all these, and then we do pattern recognition workshops, where it's about finding what are the patterns in this, what, what are the interesting areas, and of course, tying that up to the mission of the company, that setting sort of the guiding star for which way we want to go, combined with with the more intermediate strategies, saying where is it we need to focus, what are our priorities, and uh, and that combines then with the patterns that we see. And and the patterns that's created then forms a direction. And that's why we call it the direction wall. Um, and each direction typically becomes a work stream. <clears throat> and in a work stream, we do more deep dive on d work. So it's it's not not yet a project. It's typically not yet been productized. Right. So it's more an opportunity space that we are exploring, mm-hmm. um, set by the direction that we have through the pattern recognition. Um, and out of that work stream, could one or more projects be born?
1: Right.
2: And then once it's a project, it then gets a project team that runs with it. And both in the work stream process, as well as in the project development process, we work around these two-week work cycles, um, borrowed from the Scrum methodology, um, but adopted to also physical products, not just software, and um, and where basically everything moves from creating a hypothesis, we believe this to be true about this thing, mm. building a prototype of that experience, whether it'll be you know a physical product, it can also be a service, um, but you have to build a prototype, something that can be experienced, and then two weeks later that is demoed to an audience um, and tried out and tested with users as well. Whether that being the kids or the parents or the retailers. Um, and then based on the learnings from that, a new work cycle is kicked off um, that then either elaborates furthermore on the same hypothesis or creates a new hypothesis but based on the learning always, yep. so that every decision, every move, every change in the project is based on insights and not hunches or changes in opinions or mm. what you whatever you have. So, so it makes it it makes it f- move fast, yeah. heavily based on insights, um, and uh, with with many sort of sanity checks on is what we are doing the right way. You can maximum invest two weeks in the wrong direction. And that's the key. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and this is the two weeks is is linked to this Scrum approach. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more about about what what that involves?
2: Yeah. So actually, original Scrum. That's not what we're doing because it has a lot of specific you know rules to it. So it's it's more what is today called Agile. But it's it's leaning on Scrum because we're using some of the same things. So we have um, we have a backlog of potential, interesting projects. We, can't, we don't have resources to run all of them. So on a, let's say on the start of a, of a work cycle, we prioritize what are the projects or activities that are key that we need to focus on. Okay. And those are the projects that gets manned with teams. And those teams then sit down and say, what is the, the key, most important thing we need to learn or we need to understand or have validated about this project? And they create a hypothesis that's, that has a statement in it that needs to be validated. Then they work for two weeks, and what they really focus on is making it real, making it come alive. At different phases of a project, activities will be different because one work cycle can be more focusing on generating more insights uh, that is more generalistic. So you don't yet have a product, you don't yet have a tangible experience, um, but you more have a set of uh, assumptions that then becomes the hypothesis. Later on, you're maybe ready to actually form an experience and you're starting physically prototyping something that's, that's tangible that people can try out. It may still be very much faked, and that's an important part of it. We don't want you know, fully functional, highly polished things happening because then two weeks is gonna be extremely stressful. <laughs> we want things that are really faked and mucked up, but the important thing is that it should create the illusion For whoever tries it out, and especially for the kids that's going to try it, that this is working. This is an experience. And so you can get an honest sort of emotional feedback, not just an intellectual, like, do you like blue or red? And people will sort of uh, form opinion more from an intellectual perspective. And here we want to see how they interact with it. And from that also have observations that, that might not be verbalized from the user and um, then um, we so you could say if the work cycle starts on a Monday then in the week after on that Thursday mm-hmm. there we have the demo day and there we of course we are the whole unit is joining in on that day so we all see what it, what the other teams are doing but we also invite a lot of other stakeholders from around the company especially the other front-end units as well as selected members from the actual uh, product teams that are running the core business from our senior leadership teams as well come and join and see these um demos and prototypes to get input um it's not a decision making um process but it's it's only about getting input and i think the, the most important aspect of this is actually to also start building a change mindset with the stakeholders in understanding these new areas and opportunities then on the friday um the teams will sort of use the day on reflection based on the, on the, the, the run, this right circle they had, combined with the input they got from stakeholders and the leadership team. And from that, um, they'll do sort of a, a resource assessment on, on what do we need going forward. And then on the Monday is the planning day where they plan the next work cycle, and then it starts again.
1: And it's, I mean, it was a question that came up from the audience, mm. it's every every two weeks, this is, this is what Working in Lego is like, and working
2: in our unit is like, yeah, because it's not the whole company that's running like this. And right now, it's it's just Creative Play Lab, yeah, thirty five people. So um, it's I'm not sure it's something that would necessarily work everywhere, but I do believe it's something that would be beneficial in many other places across the company.
1: Right, and perhaps is it transferable as a concept to other companies uh, doing externally in different contexts or how do you think it it could be transferred or would it be useful?
2: I think it's useful anywhere where you are not able to completely specify what the team needs to do. Oh. You know you have a starting point but you don't know the end point yeah. and if you don't know the end point then the traditional way of working is the waterfall model and it's the it's classic state skate and why it's called the waterfall model because it You can say you constantly move closer through milestones towards the end goal. But what's really hard when you're going downstream a waterfall is move back upstream again. So you have only one way to go and that's to the end. And if Mm -hmm. after, you know, let's say 18 months of working like this, Mm -hmm. your final product is not appreciated by the customer, Mm -hmm. you wasted all that time. So instead of that, then we say it's only two weeks and then we get a check with the customer. And then if what we're doing there either was in the wrong direction, it didn't work, we only lost two weeks, and we have time to then adjust, iterate, and then another two weeks. So it would work, I think, in any circumstance where what you're doing, you're not entirely sure what the end result should be, or at least the customer you have is not able to very specifically specify what they want. And even with clear specifications, you know, within software and scrum, they are working like that as well because it's a way of checking in with your customer, ongoingly, and not just at the end. Like, was was this what you meant yeah. when you specified it like this? Yeah. So it, it does work in many circumstances. I could see it. I could see it being brought out way more.
1: Super. Um, could you perhaps uh, give an example or a story or two, if you can, um, from maybe pattern. A pattern that was detected and then from that how a, a project was born and then from that how a, a, then it turned and morphed into sure. a, something more malleable that yeah. was then released?
2: Mm. Yeah, so one of the bigger things that we we've been challenged with is that of digitalization. So things becoming digital, um, there's no secret that kids are spending more and more time with digital experiences Started with games, but now toys are also getting digitalized. Um, so that means that they're becoming more engaging um, for for consumers and kids. It means you are more able to customize, to um, to engage, to choose what you want. Um, so there's a big pull towards this, and of course, being a company that produces physical toys, um, this this could be a big challenge if we are not able to move on it. So um, we got the challenge of, of um, what, looking into how might we um, leverage digitalization in our products, you know, getting, getting the best of both worlds, um, what the digital can offer, what the physical can offer. And our approach to that is would they go into the market and do a number of foundational studies and in-home tests. So really camping out with, with families, with kids, understanding their world, understanding how they use digital, what does it mean to them, what is the parent's opinions on it, you know, what type of experiences are approved, which are not, what trends can we catch from that. Bringing all that back, doing the pattern recognition, um, and seeing where are, the, where are the interesting opportunities for us. Um, we added to that, you know, new technologies such as, you know, smart devices that are becoming interesting platforms for play for the kids, they're more seamless intuitive for kids to engage with and they can do it on the floor together with the toys. Mm-hmm. So we looked at how might we combine our good old brick system yeah. with these new um, digital devices. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, um, we started creating uh, an experience that was just as a pilot experience to both show, both experiment with what type of experience will we be able to do, but also to understand what does it take for a company that like goes to deliver such type of experiences? Yeah. Because often, my experience is that what, what challenges a company more is not necessarily the lack of ideas to what type of experience might be relevant. You might also have really checked it with consumers and understand that this is what they want, but it's also the ability to actually execute it at a large scale. Because you maybe need to build new core capabilities, <clears throat> new processes, maybe reorganize yourself.
1: Yeah.
2: So we um, developed a a product experience, launched it in the market, a very limited pilot, just one market with just one customer. We pulled in the customer, so the retailer, very closely in, had a very close collaboration and understanding not just the experience, but also the go-to-market strategy, the communication around this new experience. So we would understand the full value chain, um, executed that, and then gathered all the learnings from this. Um, and what was really important there was not being ambitious about financial targets, but more targets around how consumers perceiving it. What's the NPS scores on this? Um, what's the, um, the in-store sort of uh, shopper situation like? Um, how is it performing amongst other products? Um, the experience when it gets home to the families, what works, what doesn't? What is it played together with? Um, all the things that you cannot learn in a lab because there it's, it's artificially set up and there's a lot of factors that are not present, which would normally be potential uh, disruptors of your perfect little play scenario. So, um, so understanding that in the real world um, over a period of time and then from that extracting a lot of learning. So what we also were sort of experimenting with and innovating with is how can we gather maximum data, analyze this data, and use it to do live iterations of the experiences that we have out there. So that's another part to be able to have a setup that's active live after the products go out because that's when the real work starts. Um, that <clears throat> During the process we, um, we started involving the core businesses understanding what it is we were doing and when we sort of have concluded on the pilot we transferred all that knowledge, actually by transferring uh, key members of the team further downstream that then started working on some new projects that would be integrating physical and, and, and digital experiences. And that then, you know, helped provide some new experiences into the market that was building on top of the learning and insights as well as the capabilities we built because a number of people had become experts from our pilot and could now provide that expertise further downstream
1: and just to fully understand kind of uh where certain books stop um in terms of your of the 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 lab and what you're tasked to do where where is it that you 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 then kind of stop uh, and and integrate it then or do you keep whatever you develop in in your own house do you do you develop uh the whole thing and and, and if you understand mm, yeah, because sure. that's the that's yeah. the kind of the tricky part yeah. how do you how do you not overburden yeah. one of these radical innovation labs
2: exactly so <clears throat> we of course we we need to understand when is a new area whether it being just one product experience or a whole set of experiences when are they mature enough? To run downstream, and there's a, there's a number of factors we're looking at. In general, we're looking at we, we bundle them in three areas: okay. desirability, feasibility, and viability. Yeah. So, desirability, of course, does, does this resonate with consumers? Are kids excited about it? Uh, and and uh, do they know how to how to play with it? Yeah. Feasibility, you know, can we do it? Both from a experience perspective, but also from an operating model perspective. Um, and viability, you know, does it deliver on our business objectives? When we have validated all those three to a level where the, the downstream business looks at it and says, wow, that's really interesting. We would love to take that in and we can see how we can do that, you know, without too much risk. Then, you know, it's mature enough. Right. So there's no, there's no set of um, days or months where we say now it's had enough time. Now it needs to move on. Um, It really depends on the maturity of the projects. And that's also why one of the things we are measured on is because we cannot be measured on financial returns because whatever we're working on, it might take years before it actually reaches the market. So so that would be too late to sort of be measured on and been probably scoped and changed uh, along the way. So we measure ourselves on the maturity level of our portfolio. And we constantly need to make sure that we are maturing new experiences to a level where they are attractive for downstream. All the things might not be picked up at the same time downstream. It depends on what the portfolio needs, um, strategic priorities, um, etc. But it's a win if we mature it and it's ready to move downstream and it ticks off these three key areas.
1: Okay. I guess something we haven't touched on yet, but uh, I'd be curious to hear more about is um, the the culture uh, within uh, the the lab itself. Um, you know, how is that fostered? Um, you know, what are the different kind of um, experiences mm. that you've had looking back and seeing, okay, this is this is how we know this is us. Yeah,
2: the culture is an important. Bit and also a potentially challenging one because it is, it is challenging sitting and and sort of being like a lean startup within a big corporation and that's where the entrepreneurship comes in. Um, it's hard to recruit for because you want to have people that are entrepreneurial in spirit, wants to challenge the status quo, are able to do it, have fresh new thinking and ideas, but at the same time have the patience for a slow giant super tanker with all his corporate processes and uh, reorganizations and all that that follows. So finding people that, that can live in that mix is is tough. So that that's why culture means a lot for us and leading innovation uh, in our leadership team is, is really important to create the, the the necessary environment to make people thrive in that. And part of it is, is isolating a little the unit from from all the other things that's going on so so we are allowed to have a more long-term perspective while at the same time being incredibly good stakeholder stakeholder you know doing stakeholder management networking in the organization um, because that's how you make things work so we <clears throat> build up sort of the um, uh, five key key things that uh, we say you know makes you become a diplomatic rebel which means one that challenges status quo, but at the same time can navigate the big corporate organization and be diplomatic enough to sort of um, make the stuff you work with be integrated down the, down the road. And those are the first point is, you know, you, you need to accept that there will be resistance um, in the beginning. Uh, some people might even hate your project because it's doing something that disrupts whatever they're doing or, you know, changing the way and it's bending rules or it's It's breaking rules that were set in the company. And the second one addresses that because that is understanding the rules that you're actually breaking, understanding why were they there in the first place. You know, we have had a a, a successful business maybe for many years. Um, What made that successful? And why are those circumstances no longer there. What has changed that therefore needs these rules to change? Because then you're also building the arguments that other people will understand because you show respect for I know why these rules were there. But this is why we need now to start bending them or doing something different. And the third one is then starting to build a tribe. So that means getting people involved. And, And there it's very important with transparency. You cannot do this in a completely siloed, closed off lab. You need to invite in stakeholders ongoingly, show it. Um of course they need, you know, the necessary confidentiality clearance, but but sometimes you also need to bend that rule a little bit. Because it's more important that you create excitement, that you get people on board, than that it's completely uh secrecy, whatever you do. And so building a tribe means you know getting more and more people behind and, and part of doing that is what we call writing love letters, but it basically means being very polite and humble towards um, the rest of the business. Um, respecting that, you know, the core business, the current business is paying your salary and you're sort of standing on the shoulders of giants with what you're doing. And that will help people want to join as you, as you pay them that respect and invite them in. And fifth is uh, making other people shine. Because at the end of the day, if people can't see what's in it for me, I'm driving the old business. Now you're saying we need to do something new. That means I'm going I'm going obsolete. If you cannot make that guy feel like a, a woman, she's part of this new experience, um, and make that person shine at the end so that person can come and say, look what I've been part of, and it's very successful. Then they won't come back. Then you'll have too much resistance. You'll be isolated. Um, so making other people shine is absolutely key at the end.
1: And I guess then hand-in-hand with an experimental process and trying new things mm. uh, comes the inevitable word failure. Yeah. And how, how does that get uh, talked about, mm. encouraged, discussed, yeah. Yeah. Um, and how to make sure that, that there's a, a learning feedback mechanism? Yeah.
2: yeah. I think if you're running the waterfall model that we discussed before, Failure can be a nasty thing because you spent months or maybe years, loads of resources. Project was potentially quite big at the end, involved a lot of people delivering stuff, a lot of investment. And then if it fails, it represents a huge loss. And that's a problem. When you're working in two week work cycles, a failure is not a failure. It's more like, okay, this hypothesis turned out to be false. And all you lost is two weeks of work and nobody's going to even notice because actually only they're going to notice is that, wow, we understood that we shouldn't go that way. Or we understood that this that we thought we've seen in the market wasn't true or wasn't true in this execution. So having that process eliminates, I would say, failure. Of course, we do bring things into the market as a pilot that represents a slightly bigger effort in terms of investment, and you uh, have to involve resources in the market, you are involving live consumers. Um, hopefully you run your process so well, because there's a lot of tests at, at each work cycle, that what you are finally piloting in the market actually do work. But there is always a risk that some somewhere down the line, there was a context in the market you couldn't have foreseen, and it didn't work. And that's why it's also important that the pilots are fairly small. So they don't represent too big an investment, that they don't jeopardize the, the brand in the market or disturb or disrupt the market itself. So if by doing all these things, you de-risk it so much that failures are not failures. They are learnings that contribute a high degree of value into how, what, what your next step should be.
1: Great. Um, and then in terms of, the, the partnering that you mentioned and, you know, not working in silos. Um, who are the types of partners that you work with? And kind of what are the, uh, what are the capabilities that you're trying to, to, to complement then? Yeah.
2: So it really depends on the focus area or the opportunity space we're looking into. Let's say it's digitalization, um, and it's both around technologies and, and software. Now, that's not a thing where, you know, the company internally had a lot of strong resources, at least not when we started out. Mm-hmm. So it meant we had to go outside and partner up with various different companies. And it starts from, in the lower end, you know, freelancers freelancing designers in that has a digital background, you know, UX designers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And by freelancing in the beginning, we before we built a huge pool of resources internally, we understand what do we need them for? How many do we need? Is it actually that capability we need? So by starting like that, so that's in the lower level, and then you go to vendors that you can bring, that helps you produce, let's say a prototype, you can't do yourself, because you don't have software developers. Mm-hmm. You, you pull in a vendor, they develop it for you, but in a collaboration. So it's 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 an ongoing thing, so they're part of the, you could say they show up for your demo day. So. Mm-hmm. There's a closer relationship and you need that because they are, though being a vendor that's hired in, work for hire, they are still an innovation partner of yours. Right. To the more strategic partnerships where it's either, it could be big technology companies, it could be universities, but where it's R&D. So you're doing joint R&D and typically there there's no financial transactions because there's a, there should be a mutual win-win between the two. So let's say a big technology company has a great new technology, but they're needing a you know the killer use case for you know how will consumers use this new thing? And we could provide that. But we need the technology and we can't develop it ourselves. We need access to it um, to try these things out. So they provide the technology, we provide the use case together. we We co-develop, so it's both developing the the software and the hardware as well as, what is the play experience in the context of of, of Lego, um, and universities? It's basically more or less in the same manner. So, um, so they want to research a new area, uh, and, and and we want to understand how we might tap into that area.
1: And um, any examples uh, of of projects or products that have come out of uh, a, a partnership process that uh, you can you're disclosed to mention?
2: <clears throat> yeah, I mean we we have both. Um, we have some that was, that was just you know, pilots that didn't move on in, in the current forms, but we also had stuff that actually moved on. So one of the early things we did was, was Lego architecture, which is basically uh, Lego for a uh, slightly older audience. So not a target within our core target group you know, of, of kids um, up to 11, 12 years old, but this is more like 16 plus and very much adults. And um, at the time when we began this project, there was no real uh, excitement about pursuing an adult uh, target group um, because it was perceived to be more uh, centered around you know, hardcore fans. Uh, and, and I think that time um, there was a sort of a stereotypical view on, on those fans. So it was like 35-year-old males living home alone in their mom's basement, you know, quite nerdy uh, niece thing. So the exception, you know the the perception was there's no business in this, right. um, but we had a hunch that there was maybe if we can tap into, you know, professional communities that has a high passion for specific areas, and here we looked at architecture and said, what if we create miniature models of famous ar- architectural buildings and houses, um, and sell them to adults, and so we did that as a pilot first. And um, and it ended up working out, and uh, was scaled, and is now a full fledged product line within our core business. So that that took it all the way in the form that we created it. Another one is like a fusion that's more recently, where we where we merged physical and digital. So that was the pilot we did within this area, and that basically te- proved to the company how might we create a seamless experience, merging the two of these worlds, but using the best things of both of them. So, um, so it would enhance the, the, the experience and make it even more creative. Um, that was stopped again as a pilot, but on the basis of that a number of new experiences have come out uh, that has been big commercial um, successes, which was based on the learning and insights that this pilot generated.
1: And can you elaborate a little bit more on what those learnings were?
2: So, it was learnings about the, the experience itself you know um, in a setting where you have physical and digital traditionally that was very difficult it felt like we were breaking the flow of the experience now I'm playing a game now I have to sit and build something physically and especially when you had desktops and, and bricks and that just didn't work together now with the smart devices and, and, and consoles it's getting more integrated okay. so there was a there were learning around how can we create a seamless integrated experience that doesn't feel broken because kids have to stop playing, stop building, stop building, stop playing? Mm-hmm. Um, that was one area. Another key area was the capability side. You know, What do we need? What type of resources and people do we need? Mm-hmm. Which of those do we insource? Which do we outsource? Um, what do we need to own ourselves? What needs to be a new core capability for us? And then following that, What changes do we need to make in our operating model, in the processes around the operations, um, in our organization as well? Because this also ties into, is it the same distribution channels, communication channels, and all that. So a lot of learning about that, which is often the, the the bigger and more challenging part of it, actually.
1: Yeah. And you also mentioned earlier in your presentation, but perhaps you could you could uh, tell a little bit more again about how you started, um, I guess, harnessing from from the crowd, so to speak, and and, and um, you know how how sure. how yeah. that process came <laughs> yeah. about. It's so quite another, an interesting another,
2: story. Yeah, another case we had was that you know we are we are fortunate to have a, a, a large uh, adult fan community. Um, Adults that are just passionate about the bricks, the models, the stories. Um, many of them because they played with it as a child, but also because of the nature of the brick. You can do anything with it. So um, you can build our models, but you can also design your own models. And many of these actually becoming sort of um, model designers because they're doing their own sculptures, their own models, their, their own things. And, and some of the things actually is something that could be sold because there's an audience for it, but either it's not, you know, scalable for us or it doesn't entirely follow our uh, values or guidelines. Um, So a lot of the things we're not doing, but the fans are doing it. And what we saw was that they were not just building stuff and creating stuff, they were also selling it. And if you went on Etsy, which is like one of the world's biggest uh, sites for homemade products sold to other consumers there would be thousands of legal products or legal-like products built by fans, sold to other fans. And it became quite a big sort of shadow economy. And much of it was obviously infringing the brand in various ways. And we were discussing this with our legal department. And they said, yeah, we could do something, but it would take hundreds of lawyers, five years, and we most likely be killing the brand while doing it. Because these are our strongest fans. These are so passionate and in love with the brand, with the product, Um, We should celebrate it and that's what we decided to do. You know, if you can't beat them join them Mm -hmm. So how do we build a platform a little like? Apple's app store, you know, how how do you allow for consumers to co-create on your platform with the elements that you provided? Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing we did was to start certifying a number of them the most successful ones that were actually driving real businesses around it Mm -hmm. saying if you're willing to follow these simple guidelines that has to do with child safety and we don't want to see any kids get hurt from models that you create and sell. Okay. And uh, um, quality as well. So there should be a certain level of quality in what you do. If you can follow these guidelines, we'll certify you, and you can be allowed to use our brand, uh, no cost attached. Um, so that empowered, but it wasn't super scalable because it, you know, it was a couple of hundred people, but only the most successful ones. And on top of that, we built a crowdsourcing platform. Um, It's a platform, it's called Legal Ideas and basically it allows for fans and consumers at large to come up with product ideas for something we're currently not doing but that they would love to see do and that they believe more people would be interested in. They pitch it on this site by either sketching it or ideally they build it, um, whatever it is, but now they need to be the marketeers of it because they have to gather minimum 10,000 supporters on the platform. And the supporter is a person that's willing to buy the product, if launched, at a given price point. And when they do that, that's when we will review it. And we're committed to launching three to four products from this line every year, those that gets the most supporters, and at the same time have a match, of course, with legal values and DNA. So that we are doing, but at the beginning when we had the idea, let's say, couldn't we crowdsource all these ideas? There are thousands of ideas out there, they're floating on blogs and websites and etsy couldn't report in, Top management was not very, uh, you know, convinced. Uh, actually, we got more or less a flat no. Um, so we had to, okay, we had to experiment our way into this somehow with low risk. Yeah. So we decided to do a small pilot of this only in Japan on an existing Japanese site um, with a small company that was already doing this with other partners and we called it Lego KUSO, and KUSO means wish in Japanese. Um, so here Japanese consumers could wish Uh, For their products and put it on the platform. The reason why we took it to Japan is you know that the language is a huge barrier We didn't want it to spread globally, but also it was a mature legal market So we knew we had fans there and adult fans especially So we did that and we ran it for two years the first product that was run out of it um, that came out Was a sort of a Japanese submarine Um, There was a pride engineering pride of Japan It was a real submarine could go down to six kilometers depth manned, uh, and is the only one in the world that can do that. So we made a legal product of it and, and, and sold it in the market and it quickly become one of the best selling items in that market ever within the price point. So it showed that there was a direction not only for gathering ideas, creating engagement uh, around our product and brand, but actually also sound business and the ideas that came up would be relevant not just for a thousand or ten thousand people, but maybe to a million people. Um, because it, it sort of showed us where are the communities of interest. So we launched it globally um, and there again we were quite nervous, you know, well, will it catch on on a global scale and uh, we set the bar 10,000 supporters, you know, for us to review it. The first product that came on was Lego Minecraft. Um, and Minecraft is this digital game where you're, where you're building almost like with Lego but digitally with blocks. Very popular, there was about 80 million active users on the platform at that point. Um, and uh, when it, when a fan posted the idea of creating a physical Minecraft product, but based on the game, we got more than four hundred thousand supporters in just twenty four hours. Yeah. We had millions of, of unique visitors on the site, and the servers crashed three times those twenty four hours. And it really proved that you know when we tie into a community of high interest and passion, in an in execution where there's a you know where there's a great deal of authenticity in the product you know it celebrates both Lego and the IP or the the uh, the experience that's being portrayed um, it can be very successful We'll have high conversion rates into that community yeah. So now it's a uh, now we handed it over to the core business they are running the platform and um, it's quite a significant growth drivers uh, for the for the company
1: and it seems to be following the same kind of pattern or philosophy of yours to, to start small, de-risk as much as possible uh, and, uh, and be open and, and yeah. see, see what happens, yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Um, there was a, an interesting question that you posed uh, in your in your um, talk earlier on, and, and I think it was to yourself, so I might just repeat it back to you. Sure. Uh, what kind of capabilities do we need now in order to be future-proof? So, we've possibly covered it, but it could be a nice uh, note to recap and end on, uh, if you were to, to please answer that then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, um, it, it has, there's a lot of different capabilities, I think some of them we're already starting to build. No doubt, digitalization is important, we need to understand how to integrate that. Mm-hmm. New technologies are coming, um, artificial intelligence will play a role in, um, in toys in the future. Um, and um, so there there are many different areas I think right now one important capability is the ability to experiment with these new things because they're coming faster more frequently um, and we generally see that you know especially within technology it's developing so rapidly we need to be able to follow um, and that's a capability in itself Uh, so I think the most important thing right now for us is probably to build a culture that is able to ongoingly experiment in these short work cycles so we don't spend you know, billions and, and years in the wrong direction, um, that allows for us to constantly explore and experiment and, and build learning and knowledge and insights around what the future might bring.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been really, really interesting. Nice.
0: The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, InnovationRoundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.